When I was a kid, growing up in the Midwest, with nothing but cornfields and blue sky everywhere, I frequently got bored. Really bored. So I would take things apart. Mechanical things. Electronic things. Things I found in the basement of my parents' house. My process was crude. Often I would just use a screwdriver and break a toaster, for example, down to its smallest components, and then try to map out its circuitry. Let's see, the power cord goes in here, so the electricity goes there next. After a while, I then tried to solder it all back together again. I wasn't always successful. But I did learn a lot about electricity in the process without calling an ambulance or the fire department. As I got older, I started to play around with computers. By then, there were computer games. And at that time, it wasn't a single shooter game that attracted me. What hooked me was Myst. This benevolent, stunningly beautiful mystery. It was a 3D puzzle writ large. You had this entire island, and you had to figure out what happened to the original inhabitants. They were all missing. The island was empty of people, yet you had all the things that they had left behind to go through, and there was a backstory. Something did occur, but what? At first, the clues weren't all that obvious. Then literally everything was a clue, and to resolve these required different skills. There were codes to break, there were images to match, and there were different challenges that would get you from point A to point B. It was a labyrinth full of puzzles and challenges, and I don't remember if there was ever an endpoint. I don't think that was really the point. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the relationship between hacking and game playing. More often than not, they go together. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm going to go behind the scenes and discuss what it's like to create and execute a CTF. It's more than you might think. And in a moment, you'll meet someone who's been gamifying InfoSec for years. I, I feel like I grew up kind of like any kid, like, oh, I want to make video games or, oh, I want to be a hacker. Uh, and they'll go online and kind of Google and research that sort of thing. This is John Hammond. And from an early age, like me, began to demonstrate some of the basic skills necessary to become a hacker. So I kind of got a little bit more inquisitive and a lot more curious and wanted to learn and understand more about the technology in front of me, the computers, the programs that I would use on a day-to-day -day basis. And I would just wonder like, how does that work? Why does it work the way that it does? Can I, can I make it do anything that it wasn't supposed to do? Uh, and that curiosity, and I think that, you know, that inquiring mind is the kind of person that's really drawn to these capture the flag games. So when, hey, I, how does my remote work? I'm going to break it apart just so I can understand it. <laughs> Today, John has taken this curiosity in breaking things down to become a security researcher with Huntress Labs. So at Huntress, uh, as a security researcher, I am uh, hierarchically in their, their threat ops department. So it's the cool, high-flying, on-the-keyboard work uh, between looking at malware, kind of reverse engineering, and peeling apart what we find on some of the, the hosts and uh, partners' computers that we have. That is super-duper fun. 
because, hey, we're seeing neat live off the land techniques and tricks where we invoke PowerShell through Visual Basic script, through JScript, through blah, blah, blah. And it's really fun to peel back the layers on that. Um, Additionally, I, I am kind of pulled into the marketing department a little bit to give presentations and write blog posts and kind of be out in the spotlight, educating the community. And that's fun, but not nowhere near as much fun as, as doing the real work kind of on the keyboard. <laughs> in this episode, we'll focus on John's YouTube channel, where he talks about his experiences playing Capture the Flag. But first, how does he describe Capture the Flag? I, I tend to, I guess, try and explain Capture the Flag as sort of gamified cybersecurity education. Um, it's working through activities and exercises and challenges, really, as kind of the real term, um, but small puzzles that will help you get in the weeds and really solve a technical problem, with real application-based, hands-on learning um, to test and learn your, your cybersecurity skill, whether it's memory forensics or cryptography or web application security, or even like binary exploitation or other tricks in steganography or miscellaneous kind of red team operations. It covers a lot. And uh, that's kind of what I try to explain to people. And if you have an interest in computers, then you should play capture the flag because you can learn so, so much just by tinkering, just by playing and having fun. Tinkering and having fun. So John and I have that in common. Probably you do too. I mean, what curious kid hasn't taken apart something electronic and tried to figure it out on their own? Okay, a few more definitions up front. Not all capture the flag competitions are the same. There are basically two types. For a lot of us, the version of CTF that we're likely to encounter is Jeopardy style. You know, like the TV game show. I'll take potent potables for 300, Alex, which is just a polite way of asking for a drink. Oh, it's funny. I, yeah, I, there's definitely, I think, a well-established Jeopardy style, like flavor and, and style of, of Capture the Flag. Yeah, Jeopardy, I think, is the whole gamut, <laughs> truthfully. It, it's it's a mixture of everything. And that, yeah, you can pick and choose what category you might be interested in or you might have a special specialty in, right? Say, hey, you're really sharp on forensics, but another person or another individual on your team is super sharp in binary exploitation. So they want to tackle that category. Uh, or you could kind of be a jack of all trades and get, just learn as much as you can, be really well-rounded. But I think... Either style of gameplay fosters a lot of collaboration and teamwork. So sure, if your buddy is super smart in one aspect, you can learn from them. They can learn from you. It's kind of a community and a really cool culture. So John likes to play all kinds of CTFs. And with Jeopardy style games, he later shares what he learns on YouTube. So if I want to know more about the types of questions I'll encounter in a particular CTF, I'll just watch one of John's videos. For example, from Seesaw 2018, John talked about crypto challenge category on the Jeopardy board called Baby Crypto. The question itself was ridiculous. It has a lot of yeets in it, literally Y-E-E-T, but it all basically boils down to one line. A single yeet yeeted with a single yeet equals zero. Okay, what? John took this to mean that maybe we were looking for a single byte XOR. 
Included in that question was an encrypted text file, which John downloaded and then wrote a simple Python script to decrypt. When he did that, the encrypted text resolved into a nonsense clear text phrase about Leon and some programming aspirations. But at the very end of that clear text was clearly the word flag followed by a Diffie-Hellman key. And this is what you submit to claim the points. That's an example of Jeopardy style. A series of questions like this, and they get harder or easier based on the point value. There's another flavor of CTFs, though, and that one is much more glamorous. I... I think the other one that most people probably consider as the second flavor is probably Attack and Defense. Attack and Defend, or King of the Hill, is the version of CTF that you see at DEF CON. It's exciting because it best mirrors the world of pen testing and hacking. It's kind of like a live game between uh, a red team or a blue team, maybe in that sense of a 2v2, or multiple teams that have their own services they have to kind of maintain and make sure they are up and available. Uh, But those have flaws and gimmicks and bugs. And another team that has the same vulnerability that they might need to maintain. But you can also go on the offensive. So not only defend attack and defense, but also attack, right? Go on the offensive and and beat up the other players. Okay. For CTFs, we're basically talking about two types. Got it. How do I know which type I'm signing up for? And hey, where do I even go to find out more about these competitions? Well, there's this website called CTF Time, and it lists literally all the CTFs. There's practically one a week, if not more. Definitely. Yeah. It's funny. I think there's sort of a a CTF season when kind of all all the universities are kind of back in session. Hey, September, the school year's starting uh, and you'll see, yeah, hey, some school XYZ is putting on a game or hey, there's a conference going on and there's another event. Uh, Hey, we got another competition rolling up kind of from some industry, a company or organization is putting something on. Uh, It's incredible. Just about every weekend or close to it, there's something you can kind of get your hands on and play. So after playing all these CTFs, of course, John has a few favorite. So recently, uh, and I've tried to participate as much as I can in um, one game that I, I am really, really fond of. It's the All Army Cyber Stakes. So I originally had kind of participated in Cyber Stakes way back in 2015 at the Service Academy, at the, the Coast Guard for me. And the military cares a little bit more about like, the security of stuff <laughs> like sure it's cool you can make this but can anyone break this it's the good versus evil kind of a make not just break and make that sort of idea uh, and I, I think at that point it kind of originated as kind of a competition between all the military academies the the service academies between west point and annapolis and coast guards in there air forces in there uh, now i think they just brought merchant marine in cyber stakes is a bit unusual in that it runs for 10 consecutive days allowing the players to go to work and school and catch up and play late at night the general goal with cyber stakes is to first and foremost introduce and educate people with the basic info skills they need because uh, what I've seen All Army Cyber Stakes do, at least in some of the recent games, is they'll take a classic vulnerability. They'll take kind of a well-known vulnerability that there's a lot of kind of decent understanding of and people know what they can identify it. But they'll spin it on its head and 
add a little gimmick or a little twist in there. So you'll kind of have to do some creative thinking where my SQL injection works, but it only works because it's tracking whatever IP address I come from. And, oh, I, I could somehow alter that or manipulate whatever header and field so that I could slowly squeeze in and then uh, whatever I can run a command and call back from the server, et cetera, et cetera. So rather than a cookie cutter or one equals one, just a kind of a one step baby barebone basics question or task of you, it becomes this more thorough, complex, uh, critical thinking exercise where you've got a couple other hoops or things to walk through, some other hoops to jump through. And I, and I think that's really, really fun. I like that extended <laughs> complex problem to work through. But that's one that I really love and appreciate. All Army Cyber Stakes is great. If you want to learn more, I covered Cyber Stakes in episode one of The Hacker Mind. And I talk about the need for military brass to better understand computer security if they're going to enact policies that involve computer security. So that's the military side. What if, like me, you're not part of the military? What's a good entry point for starting CTFs or information security for that matter? For kind of the beginners, kind of like ones just getting started, newcomers that are interested in this field, I do give a lot of love to Pico CTF. Uh, I think that's become well known. It's just what folks will point to and say, hey, if you're interested in Capture the Flag, this one is really great at holding your hand and just kind of getting you in the thick of it. Even if it's running simple Linux commands and just being in the command line to navigate around the file system, it'll get you started. And that's fantastic for to really just springboard someone into a, a great scene and culture. Wait, it says on their website that Pico CTF, which is created by security experts at Carnegie Mellon University, is the largest cybersecurity hacking contest for middle and high school students. What if I'm older? Yeah, it's funny. I see it advertised as like, hey, it's for middle school and high school students. Um, and then someone might play who's years ahead and they, hey, they're in their 30s or their 40s and say, this is too hard. This is a, this is a kick to the ego. But uh, no, it is really for everyone. It's it's for your learning. It's for your playing. And don't don't feel like you have to take, oh, it's aimed towards middle school and high schoolers as some strict rule. It's It's something meant to be approachable to everyone. There's another popular CTF. I talked to a member of the Plaid Parliament of Poning, arguably one of the best CTF teams in the world. And in episode two of The Hacker Mind, Zerata mentioned that before joining PPP, she got her start with Cybersecurity Awareness Worldwide, which is better known as Seesaw. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Seesaw, that comes out of uh, New York University, I think. Is that right? They put together a great game uh, and even kind of their more finals and they get into other rounds of it. They do get a little bit more complex and have a bit more weight to them. Uh, but some of their beginner stuff and kind of just, hey, learning forensics or getting your feet on the, getting your hands on the keyboard, right? Uh, they're doing an exceptional job. So Cyberstakes, Pico CTF, and Seesaw each have been around for a while almost 20 years in the case of Seesaw. But there are a lot of new CTFs coming online. And with some of these, you can stand to make a fair amount of money if you win. And, and that you can kind of approach that from two different ways. So some events, some games, some competitions in the capture the flag scene will have a monetary prize if you play as a player. Uh, hey, 
I don't know, Google's finals or some of the DEF CON stuff or whatever the case may be, whatever group organization may say, hey, we'll pay you $1,337. We'll give you some elite money or uh, whatever they went like. Or you could have some incredible prizes, not in monetary value. Some of the some of the pwn to own games, right? If you break into this car, if you hack into this airplane, you can have it. <laughs> There's the incentive is like whatever you hack into, maybe you could keep or we'll give you a drone or some other Raspberry Pi, some hacker toy. And those are always, I think, good wins there. The other aspect of that is if you're not acting as a player and you are kind of organizing or hosting or offering these capture the flag games, I think personally, there is an interesting kind of market in that. Like that that's a niche thing. Um, maybe you could be contracting out to companies and saying, hey, we'll put on a game for you. We'll, we'll develop the challenges. We'll host the infrastructure. We'll support and moderate. And we'll just deliver the whole service of some training for your personnel. Uh, maybe you could take that route. You could approach them that and still earn some money. So with all these CTFs, is there any market value to, say, winning these competitions? Are you more likely to get hired over someone else? I think I think there is, honestly, a lot of self-notoriety attached to it. Sure, you get bragging rights and you get your nerd points. Um, but on the same coin, like, hey, you can put that on your resume, if you're really interested in that, like you can claim and say like, Hey, I found whatever things playing CTF that actually turned out to be a zero day. <laughs> and that, that really happens too, right? Like you, whatever research or tinkering you might be doing, you could uncover something that no one else has uncovered before. Uh, and sure. You could get some street cred at being an infosec influencer on Twitter. If, if you're interested in that, but I've, I've heard some folks say uh, for good friends that I know that have played and participated in one, some of the DEF CON CTF, and they say in their bio or in their byline, like, hey, we've won the World Series of hacking. <laughs> so even, even folks that aren't uber elite nerds like us that play Capture the Flag, they kind of think like, oh, hey, that, that's a cool dude. He really knows what he's talking about. He, he's been in this. So I think that does bring some real value then shouldn't companies be starting their own if only to better educate their staff or to recruit and retrain staff they already have? I have screamed and I shout from the rooftops. I try and sing the praises of Capture the Flag because it's such a great way to learn and that there is motivation and seeing your name up, up on a leaderboard and knowing you can solve just one more and, and you'll pass that person ahead of you. Uh, so you'll, you'll go and learn and you'll go and study and research and Google around and try and solve whatever task is in front of you. Um, it, it cultivates some real feeling of lifelong learning and companies, right? Your employers, they kind of like that. They kind of want that. If you've got this motivation, this passion and drive, uh, seeing their people, seeing their own personnel participate in capture the flag, I think that goes and proves to them that, hey, that, that individual is really dedicated and kind of loves this stuff. They, they want to get more and more of it, and they're happy to encourage that. So how easy is it to create your own CTF? I mean, you get a website, you promote it, just a bunch of questions, right? There's a lot to kind of unpack okay. in that conversation. Um, first, I think, and this, the questions that you have to ask yourself will 
probably help answer what you'll end up doing next at the technical level or actually implementing it. Um, but you have to know how many people do you expect to play this game? Because how strong infrastructure, what, what kind of powerhouse server do we need to put this on? Uh, and how long is the game going to run for? Is this going to be an eight hour, hey, just a single day sprint? Or are we running this throughout the weekend or a whole week even for some long form training? Those will help you figure out how many challenges do we need? How many activities and puzzles should there really even be? And what do we need to spend to put this on? Are we going to be using some cloud hosting infrastructure? Is this all going to be on-premise where, we're, hey, we've got our own beefy servers? Uh, I think you kind of have to know at minimum how many people are going to play and how long are they going to be playing for? Those are the starting <laughs> tidbits. Okay, okay. So there's a fair amount of infrastructure to consider on the back end. Yeah, then I think we get into kind of the conversation of, of infrastructure, right? Um, and if you're hosting a Jeopardy game, well, you're going to be presenting cybersecurity challenges to folks and individuals and people that play uh, where it's a game of finding insecurity. It's a game of finding vulnerable stuff, stuff that's meant to be broken and exploited. You're literally giving hackers a playground. <laughs> so in a weird way, you have to secure what you're going to present as insecure. Uh, because if someone were to, I don't know, vandalize a service or they remove the flag, delete the flag for other players that now they can't solve it, well, that takes some of the fun away. Uh, and you have to make sure that the challenges are available. Uh, same thing with attack and defense. Uh, if if you are considering giving players a network to be able to interact and, and fight on the battlefield with, is that going to be public on the internet? Can anyone just jump in and play? Do you need to have a VPN or something where they can actually join that? It, there are a lot of things to kind of consider in that realm. So given all this infrastructure, given all this planning, how far in advance should you start planning? I've had schools and kind of universities and colleges kind of ask like, Hey, John, we're planning this game. Um, we don't know exactly what we're getting ourselves into. So they'd ask the same sort of questions. Um, and I think the infrastructure will take a significant amount of time. I'd probably give that a month or two months if you haven't done it before, if, uh, you've built out your solution, like, Hey, I've got Terraform, I've got Vagrant, whatever, I've got Chef and Puppet, and they can spin up some AWS instances or some Kubernetes cluster, and then it's done in like the snap of your fingers. Uh, sure, if you've done it before and it's pretty in package, you don't have to spend a whole lot of time on that. But if you're doing it for the first time, it's a little bit of an undertaking if you are still learning that process. So I'd give that maybe one or two or even three months. Uh, if that's the first time, if you're doing challenge development, if you're creating the puzzles and the tasks and the activities that the players are going to do, again, depending on how many you're going to roll out, that will take a lot of time. If you're working with a team of people like, hey, you and your buddies are putting this together or your school club or whatever the case may be, maybe five people, if you want to push out 30 challenges, uh, hey, you're probably juggling life and other school activities and plenty of other commitments. And maybe that'll take a month or two or three. So unless you've got a team of people kind of coordinating who can tackle what, uh, I would think it, it might take some months. 
Are there established rules for CTFs? You know, a Robert's rule of order for how the games should be played? Or is it the Wild Wild West? Remember the example above. By the time you decoded the message and read through the plain text, how did you know you found the flag? Right. It was clearly marked as flag with a Diffie-Hellman key. I'm sure you probably know someone. It's like the many maxims of hosting is maximum CTF. Or is that? I think that's for all secure or plaid parlant opponent or some correlation. <laughs> but uh, I think they put out, here are some ground rules like, hey, you should have a standard flag format. Like when someone solves a challenge, they should immediately know that they've solved a challenge. There shouldn't be any sort of uncertainty as to like, okay, I pop the shell. Now what? Like, hey, we should probably put the flag in the current directory they land in or whatever the case may be. Um, having that flag format helps them know, hey, I know what I'm looking for. I know what my objective is. I know what I'm targeting. That's one, I think, important standard. Uh, the other is, kind of on that same vein, kind of a trajectory off of that is like, there shouldn't be any guessing. Like we, we don't want some logical leap of faith that no one other than the author, the person who designed this challenge would be able to draw that conclusion. Whatever we can do to put in breadcrumbs or some leading thing so that a person can help themselves learn and maybe even know they're going down the right path. We want to put that in place because we don't want it to just be a guessing game. There are other difficulties in planning a CTF, such as how do you register the players and then grant them access, and then they're scoring. Some of this has been templatized. Thankfully, some of the technicalities are handled by whatever platform you might be using. If you're working with an open source kind of project or, or organization plan that like, hey, we'll use CTFD we'll have that open source framework that we can put to use for the front end. And that will handle users and user registration, login, et cetera, and the scoreboard. It'll just kind of create and generate for you. Then, okay, when a person solves a challenge, if they're tied with someone at the very same point value, we'll go based off time and say the first person that solved that is hierarchically in first place or second place they'll be higher up because they solved it first thankfully a lot of times your framework if you're using one that can handle it for you ctfd is phenomenal in my opinion personally that's what i use uh, i know fbctf or facebook ctf kind of project is a thing uh, pico ctf of course theirs is open source and there's a lot to unravel in that RCTF, I think RACTF, I see there, there's plenty. If you go online and Google around, you can find some pretty incredible front end open source frameworks to use. And thankfully, that'll handle some of the technical difficulties. But you and your team also still want to be moderating and facilitating and just supporting the game. So, hey, all of a sudden the website went down. Oh, okay, let's go check to make sure whatever Redis cache or whatever is still intact or, oh, we're not getting points for something like, oh, is a database still functioning correctly? Or, okay, there's something wrong where anything I submit is still corrected and, and accepted as the, the, the actual answer. Well, we should go make sure the flag validation is set. So you do need a human, of course, actually being able to moderate and support the game. I would definitely recommend having a team for that because if you have a large player base, that can be like, fighting fires 
uh, can be very frantic and, and <laughs> really chaotic. So how does all this advice play out for John? How did his CTF go? Originally, we hosted VersetCon, I think was the first in this saga. Um, and that was 10 DigitalOcean servers on the front end and the load balancer there. And um, another 10 DigitalOcean servers on the back end. So the front end would run all the CTFD front end instances, and there'd be a Redis server and a MySQL database off kind of in their own land, but not behind a load balancer. Um, and then the backend servers would all run Docker containers. And that's how we would kind of encapsulate and secure our insecure challenges. Uh, those would work well, but it meant that every player that connected to a dynamic service was sharing that service with the other players. So it's a shared container and a shared instance. So we have to lock it down and make it read only because if one bad apple vandalizes the challenge, kind of, as I was discussing, they would remove the flag or they just RMRF or drop files everywhere. It, it ruins the fun. So that was kind of a limitation to that development, uh, to that infrastructure setup was because it was a shared container. Um, now, later on, after VersetCon and after NomCon and then after ActivityCon and B-Sides Boston and GrimCon, et cetera, uh, now we've kind of moved into some more stable infrastructure, in my opinion. We're using the Google Cloud platform and we're using Kubernetes to scale out Docker clusters and containers for everything. <laughs> so the CTFD front end is a Docker container. The SQL server is some of... I think Google's SQL organization, cloud cluster, stuff like that. <laughs> um, and it's all scalable because it's Kubernetes and all the challenges can be kickstarted and kind of deployed per user. So now we're no longer using shared containers and every user gets their own instance. So they can RM, attack RF, they can fork bomb, they can do whatever they want. They're only hurting themselves. So much, much better, much more stable, and gives us a lot more flexibility with what we design and create. Sounds like you have to create an intranet, a protected network, something that is isolated in a sandbox, which you host, the CTF. It's not so much the danger of the information leaking out into the broader internet. It's more that you don't want players sabotaging other players. And so the insecure environment it's not really threatening the East Coast, you know, the power grid or whatever. It's more that there are flags and those flags are missing. You don't want to go through this whole challenge, get to the bottom and find out that there's no flag there. You'd be really bummed out. I do think that's uh, the value of capture the flag in some way. Um, you made this point like, hey, it's not a real thing, like threatening or impeding whatever power grid or system that's in industry, it's it's a sport and it's for play. It's a game and it's a puzzle. Um, there are, I think, some conversations that kind of poo-poo on that. They say, "Oh, it's it's not realistic," or but truthfully, I I, I combat that and I'd argue against that. They're like you're distilling down the learning process to kind of bite-sized, digestible chunks, and you can get to a much, much more in-depth, complex, realistic level, depending on what game you play or, or how you approach it. But 
for getting your feet wet, it's it's a really great vessel to to jump in. Even as a pro, John has had his moments when, well, everything seemed to go wrong. So this will be a story in moderating and support and facilitating a game because recently we've tried to put together um, a better looking display and kind of a, a cozier, more friendly look towards the capture the flag games that we put on because we wanted to bring in these per user deployable instances for challenges. We wanted to make it something that anyone can just spin up and play with. Um, so we basically wrote some custom wrappers and plugins for CTFD. The CTFD on its own like works really well. It's great. It's open source and extensible, but uh, we wanted to do more with it and we didn't want to look like a classic vanilla flat CTFD instance. So with our new plugin that was working with these deployable Kubernetes based challenges, we had to re-implement a lot of the things that CTFD did. That also meant re-implementing whether a flag was valid or invalid. So there's some there's a solve function in Python, and there's also a fail function in Python, and there are some wrappers to, to execute those as you click the submit button. We had, during a real game that we were hosting, some accidental typo, some accidental copy and paste that the fail function was calling the solve function. <laughs> so no matter what you put in, even if the flag validation regex or the regular expression was right, everyone was getting points everywhere for every challenge. We're like, what is happening? <laughs> uh, that was a big boo-boo and, and a big mistake. And we were really pulling our hair out trying to figure out what was going wrong because it's like the database is working just fine all the instances are up the flags look fine what is happening and then we had to turn to our own code we had to a double check triple check until we finally saw it like oh my goodness it's doing the entirely wrong thing all along at just that one line of code uh so i guess it goes to show yeah we all want to develop secure and good stuff, but we all do fumble. And that's where maybe some of our vulnerabilities come from is just accidents and mistakes. So how did that end up? Clearly everyone couldn't win. I would imagine though, that even with the system of warning points the way it was, there was a database that confirmed whether the flags were submitted or not. It'd be a matter of reconciling that database, right? I guess resolution of the story boils down to an excellent and incredible moderating staff and support because we could check in on what players had submitted what. Uh, so if we could see they posted this flag as the answer and it was very clearly not the flag, they just typed in right. ASDF QWERTY or whatever, uh, we, we could remove their points and say that they hadn't actually solved that challenge. So for some time we were kind of fighting the fire there and would end up taking away the solve for people that didn't legitimately solve that challenge after we had kind of fixed the problem and plugged that hole. So it did get resolved. And for a little bit, it was just a, a running joke <laughs> or some accident where, Hey, the first hour of the game, all points are free. <laughs> Given his experience, what advice would John have to someone wanting to start to create their own CTF? Um, I guess the biggest takeaways for me 
when hosting a game is uh, never trust the player because there will always be someone that kind of vandalizes or removes the flag or just kind of wants to break things. Um, always kind of prepare for more. So, hey, we're expecting a thousand people to play, or at least we've got 2,000. We, we think maybe 2,000 people will play. You, you want to err on the side of caution and prepare more infrastructure or things necessary to be able to handle that load. Um, and the same thing for time, especially if you're working with another party, if you're working with a school, if you're working with a company or a business to put this thing together, there are a lot more logistics that you have to keep in mind. Uh, like, hey, what about prizes? Who's going to handle prizes? Are we doing prizes? Or what about support? Is there going to be a Discord server? Are we handling a Slack server? I don't want people to be emailing me questions for a, a capture the flag. There are a lot of other things to keep in mind. Uh, and I would have everyone kind of dot all the I's and cross the T's if they, if they want to put that together. Given the rising popularity of CTFs one a week now, where is this all going? I mean, what can we expect to see from CTFs in the future? I, I have a lot of folks that ask me kind of from the other stuff that I do is like, do you think, hey, hacking and capture the flag will ever turn into this esports thing where we've got a spectator sport and just like gaming, just like, hey, someone might stream World of Warcraft or League of Legends or whatever. Will people stream playing capture the flag? And will that hacking become a sport much like gaming has now? And truthfully, I think it, it will. I, I think that would be very cool. And I'm excited and looking forward for that day. I don't think we're there yet. Um, we might, we got to get a lot more people interested and in kind of in the scene, but I definitely agree that it, it aligns really well with gaming because it is something to play and tinker with. So yes, you've got your hacker mindset and you've got your gamer mindset where you, you want to compete and you want to explore and play. So definitely, I think it, it strikes a chord with both. I'd like to thank John Hammond and encourage you to check out his YouTube channel for more insights into the CTFs that we talked about here. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your eternally puzzled and perplexed, Robert Vermosing. <laughs>